We're here with Professor Tsuneo Nishida. Professor Nishida, it's an honor to be speaking to you today. Professor Nishida, a man of many accomplishments and a very long and illustrious career working with the Japanese Foreign Ministry, you graduated from the University of Tokyo in 1970, and in the same year you entered the realm of Japanese Foreign Ministry, the Japanese Foreign Policy. What was it like entering this realm for the first time? Well, I think uh, when I, uh, at the time, if I remember correct, uh, I was uh, really pondering about, so what is the best job to uh, really, I mean, uh, the make our community, including the country and others, a little bit better than, I mean, we see today. That was uh, probably so fundamental, deep, naive kind of motivation for me to choose the uh, ministry bureaucracy. And uh, at the time, very frankly, there are two top I mean, ministries. One is finance, and another one was the foreign ministry. And uh, I thought uh, Japan is, uh, in a sense, isolated island country. We need a good diplomat to really talk to and uh, work with the rest of the world. So my choice was not finance, but I mean, a diplomat. Entering that realm for the first time, what were the key challenges or issues that were surrounding Japan's national interests at the time? At the time, Japan was a part of the NPT or not. Because NPT is, uh, like I mean, a German case, it's a difficult challenge for every, in a sense, the uh, scientifically and politically kind of emerging or even recovering countries after Second World War. And uh, that was really not only international issues, but, I mean, the domestic issues. Japan want to be somehow the country of second class or not. I mean, at that time, the jargon was Germany and Japan, huge giant of economy, but small of political sphere. So uh, then uh, NPT at that time, discussion was whether Japan was forever, somehow, by being a part of this NPT regime, abandoning kind of the options, otherwise open to the future of the Japanese diplomacy. You mentioned Japan wanting to be a, a second class? Statement. I mean, the discussion was... That was, was my opinion, but at that time discussed whether Japan, so if you choose this part of regime, NPT, and they really abandon legally the possibility for you to be, I mean, the part of this uh, nuclear club, is it really good for Japan in the future or not? So that was the issue at the time. So since you've been stationed or lived quite a long time in Germany, how was your experience during that particular period um, as a Japanese being in Germany? Well, at the time, of course, uh, as you really nicely remember, it's at the time of Ostpolitik. I mean, uh, the, uh, for German, traditionally, historically, I mean, uh, the, uh, Russia has been always big element of diplomacy. When you're talking about your economy, you're talking about geography, you're talking about strategic issues, then you never forget the East neighbor that has been always Russia. 
And uh, as you, of course, I mean, hear from my lectures or speeches, Germany was uh, the uh, divided into two parts, East and West. Therefore, for, I mean, uh, the Western German people at the time, including the students in the campus of Munich University, uh, where I have studied a little bit, uh, was totally divided into two parts, I mean, two schools. One is, yeah, just accept the reality. Because this uh, building will never, never collapse. So we have to live on with reality and we pursue Germany as part of Western camps. Another group, I think a little bit is probably minority. They said, no, no, no. I mean, uh, we once, I mean, a German nation is one. So uh, probably we have to somehow accommodate the reality, but we never be allowed to declare we really admit what we accept division of to, I mean, about Germany. As an international student during that time, and which group have you or had your affiliations with, if I might ask? To which side would you lean toward to back then? Uh, I think uh, at the time, of course, uh, as you remember, the uh, Mr. Brandt at the time, uh, the so mayor of Berlin, and after that, I mean, he was chancellor, and uh, his and his close associate, his name is Egon Bar. Uh, these are the engines of those who somehow accommodate the reality, but uh, you know, so that I mean, West Germany could live on and enjoy the prosperity. And uh, the Conservative Party, uh, they really want, as I said, no, they really do choose the another path and keeping small, probably, or never realized, but a small open place, room, for, I mean, a German diplomacy to somehow come back to this very important national agenda. And uh, I was probably the, uh, so, somehow, I mean, of uh, stronger uh, affection to the uh, so second part. You were also, just to clarify, stationed in the Soviet Union for yep. a while. Now, having been in East Germany and the Soviet Union, I would like to know, how was the perception of the unification of from East and West Germany in East Germany, as well as compared to the one in the Soviet Union? As well as, to clarify that a little bit more, in East Germany, the situation being so close to the border to the West Germany, the, the perception of the whole situation of unification must have been must have been quite different, I believe, from that, what has been going on actually in Moscow, being in the regime, in the kind of communist um, sphere, um, rather than being on the border. And I would like to know the differences, if you have experienced any. Yeah, it's, I think, a complex part of this, uh, this issue. Because uh, German division was a product of, I mean, uh, two world wars. As I, as I shared with you, uh, in the lecture. And, uh, unfortunately, Germany have really, I mean, a big roles, uh, even in two cases, both as well. And, uh, your division as a country in Germany was the really final result of this series of the world wars and, uh, associated with ideology, as you have mentioned communism and capitalism to make, I mean, very simple. And uh, therefore, I mean, uh, this uh, national 
kind of perspective and the global perspective are totally, totally different. And at that time, of course, I think uh, my old, many, many German friends also share, I think, my kind of impression that this is an issue of our own, but we never, we never resolve by ourselves. Americans and the Russians, they, they could resolve sometime, but probably not. I mean, at the time where I really still live, that was the perception. So that sense, I think, so you are not owner of that event, end of the day, leading to the collapse of the Berlin Wall. You are just supplies and you benefited that. Thank you for that. Now, part of your career at one point, in 2010, you became the permanent representative of Japan to the United Nations for around three years, if I'm not mistaken. Three years. During those three years, what were the, hap- the major happenings concerning Japan during that time when it comes to international affairs? Yeah, of course, I mean, uh, the North Korea nuclear issues has been always dominant and pervading in my time and in my job as an ambassador to United Nations. And uh, this is, in a sense, also from national perspective, priority number one. Uh, no doubt about that. But uh, that was exactly the same time as we have been really working on Iran issues, uh, Iran nuclear issues, proliferation issues. And somehow analogy, or I mean a comparison studies have done between two cases, Korean Peninsula and Iran cases. That was in that sense, not only professionally, but intellectually, a very interesting time. And the third is, of course, uh, that was a really chaotic situation in the Middle East and Africa. And uh, during that three years, that well-known and almost forgotten, a kind of the movement that at the time named Arab Spring. We are so impressed, we are so happy to see the first phase of this Arab Spring starting from Tunisia and others, just spreading out. And uh, at the time, some of my colleagues declared, very, I mean, applauded that, finally, United Nations, finally, world has reached that level. I mean, this is responsibility to protection, R2P. Uh, it's a famous kind of the ideology. Once, I mean, your government abandoned you, I mean, the people, then a word, name of the word and humanity are allowed or even should intervene into, quote, quote, domestic issues of the third country to protect the people in front of the irresponsible local countries. Thank you. Regarding the Arab Spring, uh, in retrospect, looking back now, the Arab Spring is quite a controversial topic. In fact, many people hesitate to call it the Spring, and rather they would call it the Arab Uprising. And and the success of this uh, of this Arab Spring is also quite controversial amongst scholars. A lot of them say that uh, a lot of the countries that followed the pattern failed, or uh, they failed to prop up a, dem- a true democracy at the very least. Arguably, the only one that managed to succeed in this matter is, is arguably Tunisia 
and even that is also a controversial subject. So what is Japan's, what do you believe is Japan's uh, perspective on the success of the Arab Spring in retrospect after we see the failure for the United Nations to, uh, after, uh, after the intervention of Libya and uh, what's going on in Egypt right now? Uh, I think uh, Japan is, uh, I mean, politically and diplomatically as well, uh, pretty remote from those places like Tunisia and others, where this especially, I mean, the first phase of Arab Spring just started. And uh, therefore, I mean, the Japanese foreign policy official position on this has, I think, as I remember, not necessarily, I mean, officially, uh, well, uh, worked out. And then, I mean, the phase is changing so fast. And uh, it affects uh, Egypt and others, others. Then, of course, uh, Japan and Egypt, for example, or Japan, Saudi Arabia, have a very long and uh, deep I mean, the bilateral relations. Then this is a phase two. And this phase two, as you suggested that, it was not necessarily a happy time. So uh, I think this is uh, official part of Japanese government uh, kind of positioning on the, uh, this, I mean, the Arab Spring. And my personal uh, sense at the time, and still, uh, I still believing, uh, Arab Spring, it was good, successful or not, uh, it's too premature. At that time, people really don't, didn't really anticipate this flooding of the immigrants from that part of the world to Europe. And uh, even that, I mean, as I mentioned, the EU will be now threatened. I mean, really so hugely by this in a sense, I mean, international issue. Immigration came and flooded and over control. Well, I mean, over capacity of, I mean, EU as a system. And uh, therefore, I have no time today to compare somehow this international organization like, I mean, the UN and regional collaboration organization like EU it's not only so global and regional, but more importantly, EU needed to say this is a compromise between sovereignty of sovereign countries vis-a-vis -vis overarching kind of the international organization. So you have to sacrifice. For example, so now United States and the EU have been discussing somehow retaliating each other in this trade war. But it is not decided by Paris, by Berlin, by Brussels. So because of this power and authority of kind of the trade negotiation is now 100% almost, I mean, occupied by Euro bureaucrat, so headquarter people over there. That has been emerging. So in that sense, there are lots I mean, uh, the past or territories of sovereign traditionally, but they have to sacrifice, they have to offer in order to get bigger benefit. But uh, this immigration issue has just shaken almost like an earthquake. And um, your kind of this expertise, your experience 
as of today, could not necessarily well successfully accept and accommodate this new reality with EU, in a sense, EU charter, your, your aspirations. And uh, yesterday, or well, the day before yesterday, I watched a bit uh, the uh, press conference between Merkel and Hungary's Prime Minister. It was very open, in a sense, really very frank, very rare exposure of disparity, difference, fundamental different approaches to this issue. So I think uh, until just a minute the day before, uh, yesterday, EU was a good student. So when we're talking about international collaboration or regionalism, globalism, oh, EU was good, it's a role model. Oh, ASEAN and others, there are so many kind of institutions who follow somehow, uh, not entirely. But now people are really now starting to wonder it was really, I mean, a success story or not. Again, you, I mean, at a question about a love spring. We need a longer timeline. We need a longer perspective in order to make final judgment. EU movement was successful or... You've mentioned before the North Korean conflict, and that has been a huge topic over the past months or year even now. Um, Japan has been one of those countries which has always been threatened by the North Korean nuclear threat, as it was called before. But despite that, at the current discussions, particularly after um, Kim Jong-un met Ban Ki-moon, um, as well as uh, Donald Trump, Japan seemingly seemed passive, not involved in these whole discussions. That's at least my statement toward that position. What would your perspective be on that? I think uh, this is a very unique uh, event for Japanese diplomacy. Uh, I would like uh, to uh, encourage, uh, remember what, what is the essence of Japan and U.S. security pact? Uh, of course, protection of Japanese, I mean, uh, territories and others. And second is uh, the uh, American troops' uh, maneuverability stationed in Japan to uh, be able to, in a more effective way, dealing with Asia-Pacific events from, of course, the strategic point of view. These are the combined, I mean, this uh, Japan-US security pact. Uh, there was, uh, I think, pretty useful and uh, effective for, at least for us, I mean, uh, Japanese security. And also, I mean, uh, uh, end of the day, for Asian security. It has worked. But uh, politically, it has been always, therefore, uh, from the same reason, very vulnerable. Attacks from right, attacks from left. Because two different kind of the, so reasoning for this very, in a sense, not big treaty uh, is uh, really uh, poured into uh, this only one kind of the treaty. And therefore, it's so difficult to defend, and so difficult uh, to really, I mean, make everything safe from potential threat from right, from left. And then what, I mean, this uh, security treaty has envisaged, why end of the day this treaty is needed for what? 
One is Taiwan, another one is Korean Peninsula. Because at that time already, Japanese and Americans, we have 100% agreement. If Japan would be somehow threatened by real kind of threat, then it's a really threat to American interest in this area. And where are the most likely places those kind of events could eventually happen, in spite of all efforts to prevent them? Then at the time, Taiwan, Taiwan Strait, and the Korean Peninsula. So that was always the target earlier where this treaty has been always pointing and working very hard. So that sense, against background, Japan has been always prepared for even this today's, I mean, quote, quote, I mean, event. And therefore, I think Japan and Americans, not only political levels, bureaucracy and militaries, have been so close and uh, probably from outsider, uh, then Japan looks very small, even somehow like that. But the reality is Japan has been always part of that. I think I, of course, it doesn't mean American interests, Japanese interests are always same. Of course not. America has its own, her own goal and objectives. Japan has different objectives. But uh, I mean, the majority of those interests overlapping. And that, that is the reason why we have been really keeping this alliance. And, uh, but I think this new administration, as I said, diplomacy not necessarily working well. I mean, especially on another part of, I mean, the so partner party. Because uh, for my, I mean, colleagues, they do have still no counterpart in the State Department or in the Pentagon. So then the question is, event is there. Event could happen. Political show happen, but how to really, I mean, create sustainable negotiation and leading to some substantive solution of this issue. Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has announced that he would like to meet Kim Jong-un in September. Now you're saying that the diplomatic um, actions from Japan have been relatively unsuccessful. Particularly, Japan has also um, emphasized that it's going to keep its sanction towards North Korea if there's not going to be denuclearization, as well as this hold of the abductions. What kind of goals or achievements we might see at that summit when Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and Kim Jong-un actually are going to meet? What's Japan's point if the sanctions as well as the diplomatic situation is going to be the same? Well, uh, I know uh, that is a little headline of newspapers, but uh, my personal kind of sense uh, tells me that it doesn't happen in a quite new future. And uh, it means at least uh, until this uh, midterm election in America and others. Uh, I don't think that I mean, this kind of summit meeting between North Korea and Japan very unlikely happens. And I think this is good uh, probably for Prime Minister Abe himself. He tried to 
uh, I'm not part of the government, so of course I'm not well informed about. Uh, so I am a little bit cautious about saying kind of final word. But I think it might be good for him as political leader to buy time and to give the sense or I mean impression I am part of that until he will be re-elected to a three-time election of, I mean, the president of ADP or something like that. I mean, all, I mean, the leaders of all countries have international agenda, but rather domestic agendas. Thank you very much for that. To wrap this up, I'm just going to ask you about your predictions for the next five years of Japanese foreign policy. What do you see is the future of Japanese foreign policy in pursuit of peace and stability in the next five years? I think uh, it will be a very challenging time for Japan. And uh, I think once I mean Japan could be really as, uh, as you I borrow your kind of the terminology, part of, I mean, the movement, part of the events, then I think we need probably a little bit more innovative and we are a little bit more showy in a, I mean, a clever way. Uh, so that, I mean, so, I mean, when we're talking about, for example, sled, then uh, traditional uh, kind of the so measurement of country A is really, I mean, a threat or not threat. Then we have two factors. One is uh, objective capacity. How many battleships? How many are the bombers? How many, what, what do you have? Then with those weaponry, then what you can, I mean, uh, the dare to really attack Japanese interest. This is part one. Part two is intention. So this guy, like uh, Kim Jong, always criticizing, oh, I fire uh, Japan and Tokyo will be devastated just, I mean, within 10 minutes, something like that. So, but this is really, I mean, the uh, intention. Well, just this is, in a sense, rhetoric. So intentional rhetoric is so difficult to tell. And these days, thanks to mass media, thanks to those kind of tools, we are so good at, I mean, kind of lip diplomacy, right? And this, but not necessarily always reflecting your own real intention. And then why Japanese people have not been panicked until today, uh, even, I mean, uh, the objective situation are not necessarily good, or even, I mean, uh, lip diplomacy are really the worst. But they somehow cool enough. First of all, the, uh, this, I mean, uh, the effect of the Japan-US security pact, and there are many American GIs, bases, and we know and how really so closely they have been coordinated, trained, they are prepared. This is one. Second is, I think, we see until now, even this guy, uh, see more kind of lip service, but not the real intentions. So um, this is always a balance, right? So we need a both. Kind of the uh, so very cool analysis of intention, and another one is a real kind of the capacity to build up for eventuality. And we have been doing both. Plus, as your last question, politicians, all leaders need domestic agendas as well. 
Thank you very much. Professor Nishida, it has been a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you so much. Pleasure was mine.